Welcome to another value-packed episode of the Customer Who Click podcast. Uh, today, we're talking about a super important topic for any business, and that is positioning. Every year, thousands of businesses go bust because they don't understand their audience, they don't fully understand the value of their product or service, and they don't explain it in a way that actually aligns with their customers' needs. Um, so they can't put themselves in, their, in, in front of their customers, and they go bust. Now, just because you're not necessarily about to go bust, or you might even be doing hundreds of thousands or millions every month in revenue, but you can always do better. And a really key way of helping you do this is establishing your position in the market and really understanding your customers. So today I've got Peter Went uh, with me to explain just how you can do that. Let's hear from him now. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, um, what you do and, and why you do it? Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I what I do is I help startups, typically tech startups, to craft a proposition that will help people to um, will make people listen and take action. And I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it from a purpose perspective. I do it because I spent my life in early stage businesses. I've set up and built a few businesses myself. So the last twenty five years, I've been in startups. And I feel a genuine sense of affinity and connection to that community. And I remember how um, how grateful and beneficial it was when I first started to have help from people who'd been there and done it. And so I do feel a little bit of, their, of giving back to the community. Um, and I also do it because it's what I see startups, from my experience, what I see startups get wrong most often, and it's potentially the most damaging um, aspect of the early stage of their, of their lives. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I've, I've been in startups myself. And I, yeah, I've seen that happen. You know, there there is a product. They know what that product does, um, but there's a bit of a bit of a lack of kind of messaging and that positioning to actually uh, really help them sell it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. what's the what's just what's a normal day look like for you? That's like that's an interesting question. Actually, it looks very different now than it did three or four months ago. So, the, the way I used to deliver what I do is through a one day workshop, um, and so. Up until March, I was I spent most days somewhere, either on a train or driving to, to a company somewhere to deliver my workshop. But obviously that stopped. Um, it's now a completely online course. Um, so my day is, uh, from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm a bit of an early riser. I like to get up quite early, so I'm probably out of my bed at something like half past five, and I probably spend a little bit of time, if I'm honest. I'd love to say that I get up and I meditate and all that good stuff, but I don't. I, I, the first half an hour of my day, I'll faff and do something I want to do. I might spend some time on a conversation on Twitter or something. But I value those first couple of hours of the day when I'm on my own, the phone's not ringing, there's nobody about. And the rest of the time, I do I do now a lot of coaching online over Zoom to supplement my course. And when I'm, so I do that most days, I'm, I'm coaching somebody. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm building content, building contacts, that sort of thing. So it's a, it, I'm, I work from home and, um, yeah, a very different looking day than it was three months ago. It's changed completely. Yeah, I was hoping by the uh, middle of July that, that that wouldn't be something that gets mentioned on the podcast anymore. But it's been pretty much every episode. Um, yeah, so. it's interesting. I think there is now a new convention. If you're British, you have to start your conversation with five minutes of coronavirus. I think it's taken the place of the weather. Yeah, the weather doesn't come up so much. No, anymore. no. No, I think we'll be talking about it for a while. I mean, that's a different conversation, but um, yeah, it's not, not yeah. gone away or going away. Yeah, but I'm uh, a little bit similar. I'm not as early in the <laughs> earlier riser, but uh, 
yeah, I, I don't do the whole meditation and, and all that stuff. I, I have my own little routine in the morning. I like it. It keeps me happy. It's, uh, you know, it gets me prepared for kind of 8.30, 9 o'clock when I start. And actually what's interesting is that I didn't used to get up at 5.30 before lockdown. It's, it, so there's two, a couple of things I do. One is I get up early and do a bit of work, and then I go out for a run. I don't, I don't want to sound worthy, but I go, I go out for a run at about 8 o'clock, two or three times a week. Um, and I didn't, didn't used to do that either. And I could have done. I've always I've worked from home for the last, you know, for, for years. Um, so there's no reason why I shouldn't have done that pre-lockdown. But something about, I think when lockdown started, I think like most people, our anxiety levels went up a little bit. And um, so those, those two things I found that were good coping mechanisms for me. Getting some work, getting up early, getting some work done, going out for a run, just set me up for the day nicely. Yeah. Yeah, it's what you, what you need, isn't it? Especially if you're locked inside all day. Hmm. Um, so tell us a bit more about what you do. Tell us about kind of positioning and uh, and how the importance of that to a brand. So I think you you put you you hit the nail on the head. I, what I see is regularly see genius products, products that are so clever they make your eyes water. But people they the, the people who built them, who are typically technicians, don't know how to go about communicating them to their market in a way that's compelling or that resonates. Um, or that people even understand sometimes. And so quite often what I'm doing is um, taking the great ideas and what those great ideas can do and almost acting like a translator and turn them into a language that resonates with people. Um, so often it's not about any sort of magic dust. It's just about ordering people's thoughts. And you know, there's, there's, a way, there's a way to tell people about a product that will engage them. And there's a way to tell people about a product which will guarantee they'll just scroll to the next one in five seconds. And so quite often it's just taking what's already there and helping people to understand how to do that as a framework I use. And I think it's you know how you position yourself and, and how you articulate your proposition, I think is it's it's survival stuff. If you don't do it properly, you're you're you know you you could have the best product in the world um, and it won't go anywhere. And a, but you can take sometimes you can take bad products and make a lot of them by compelling by, by, by writing a proposition that really works. So a great example, it's not in the tech world, but you know, LinkedIn is full of life coaches. I mean, I did a count on them and I did an article about them a while ago. There was something like 80,000 in the UK. And there are some brilliant ones who spent their lives qualifying and and learning and improving. And they've got you know, 50 years of experience but they've got no business because they don't know how to go about presenting themselves. And then there are people who have done a weekend online course in NLP and have got a certificate they printed off who are brilliant marketeers and have got a waiting list. And that, so that sort of, that tells you how important the way you communicate your product or service to the market is. So it's absolutely critical that if it's going to get beyond just the development workshop and to the market, you need to, know how to position it and know how to articulate the proposition yeah definitely i mean i hopefully i'm not about to spoil what what you're going to tell us later but uh there was in in one of the recent episodes about copywriting we talked about the kind of asking so what so, so you know a company will say well we've got this is our service or our product and you say well so what it's well it helps you do this okay so what and then you, you keep asking that question to actually real, really get to the point of how does this product actually help someone and, yeah. and you know, what, what, is, what is the point of it? 
Yeah, um, no, that's, exactly. So you're, you're, that will get you to the, you know, what problem are you really solving? Yeah. So what are the first things you do when, you, when you're starting with a new client or a new project? Uh, well, actually, interesting, with you know, talking about the problem, the first thing I would do um, with any client would be to, so partly for my benefit, but also partly for their benefit, is have a discussion about what problem are you actually solving? Because um, you quite often you find people, um, I've seen a few examples of it, where they have got great ideas, but there's probably not an urgent need for that idea. So that you can't deny how clever what they're trying to do is, but what you can deny is how much demand there is for it. So you end up with a solution looking for a problem. So we, the first conversation we have is what problem are you solving? And the other thing I'll do always at the beginning of a process with a new client is to get them to tell me what they think their proposition is right now, almost like a benchmark. So it gives me a little bit of a feel as to where they are in the process, but also it's quite useful to look back on it afterwards to see how far they've come. It just made me think, actually, have you ever seen Silicon Valley, the TV show? I haven't, no. No, it's, um, it's really good. Uh, it's a comedy TV series, but it kind of takes all those stereotypes from Silicon Valley and, and gets pretty much every single one in an episode. And, uh, and one of them is about that kind of, you, you've got a great idea, but does it actually solve a problem? Do people actually need this? Yeah. And, uh, and the way people describe them, their products and services, they, they describe the, the problem they're solving and stuff. But then someone goes, well, that's just a calculator or that's, note, that's just notepad or something. And, yeah. and they, yeah. they, they don't quite realize that actually the problem is solved. They've, they've put a slight spin on it, but there's no actual need for the product. Yes, I, I, you're right. I saw, I saw a, um, an exchange on LinkedIn probably about six months ago about somebody who had been involved, and I think it might have been IBM, who had built what they described as um, a, a private blockchain for some company to be able to track, I think it was food from where it was made to the supermarket shelf. And somebody said, well, the whole point of blockchain is it's public. If you're, if you're building this thing, you're calling it a private blockchain, isn't that just a database? And there was no answer because exactly that. It was all the, all the spin and all the terminology, but actually what they just, what they produced for these guys was a database, a private database. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just kind of, I don't know if actually just using buzzwords to, to kind of sell it or whether, you know, but I think people just get overexcited about these new things and they think, how can we apply this? And they look back at other problems and they go, yeah, okay, this would work perfectly to solve this problem. And yeah, like, like you said, there's, there's just no need for it. You know, it's, it's uh, that problem is perfectly uh, solved by, by something else. Um, yeah. So, what are are there any kind of mis, um, misconceptions when it comes to brand positioning? Well, unfortunately, yes, because I think if there weren't, I wouldn't be in business. The I think the the big the biggest the biggest misconception is that your the, the purpose of your proposition is to tell your customer all about you and your product. And actually, the the, the polar opposites. I mean, clearly, you've got to tell them what you do at some point, but um, the if you if you go and look at you know you choose 10 websites at random and go and look at them i would guess you that nine and maybe even 10 of them will they'll be telling you the headline on the, on the home page will be telling you all about them we're you know a very highly qualified firm of lawyers we specialize in this we've got offices here we've won these awards um 
and that's just a turnoff for people. People, I mean, there's a so one of the things that we establish quite early on in the whether it's a workshop or an online course is there's a very uncomfortable principle that you have to get comfortable with if you're going to write a good proposition, and that principle is that nobody cares about you. Yeah, and yeah. once you've got your head around that, and it, and that's not meant to be insulting. It's just that we don't we go we go around we care about ourselves. So the, one of the questions I ask early on is, when was the last time you woke up first thing in the morning, and the first question you thought of was, I hope my next door neighbour had a good night's sleep last night. And you don't. The first thing you think of is, you know, whatever it is, I've got to make sure I get the car in for a service today, or I've got to catch the early train to work. So I've got, you know, you think about you and and yourself, and we wander around all day with a conversation in our head that's all about us. And your prospects are exactly the same. They wander around all day worrying all about them. They don't care about you. And so if you want to engage them, you've got to engage them by joining in their conversation, not saying, this is me, this is what I am, this is what I've got, these are my awards, and that, because that just turns them off, because that's not part of their conversation. Yeah, I think you do see that with um, with SAS a lot, don't you? Lots and lots of awards and appeared in and things yeah. like that. and. I know it kind of adds a little bit of social proof. You know, if you've been featured on certain websites, um, you know, if, if you're featured on the BBC, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good spot to get. Um, and and I, I do like TechCrunch, but I, almost every SaaS company um, that that's you know at least fairly established seems to have featured on on TechCrunch. Yeah, I think they did end up being diluted. I think there is. Yeah. So I, 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 don't misunderstand me. I'm not. There is definitely a place for social proof in a proposition. It's a it's a pretty powerful mental buying trigger. We you know we do what other people do, but you just got to get these things in the right order. So what these websites do is they open up with their social proof, and the first thing they say to you is, "This is us. We've been on TechCrunch. This is how great we are. These are our awards." And that's not. You can't start like that. You need to engage somebody before you can tell them about yourself. And so. Really, I suppose we're talking about the opening part of a proposition, which is the most important part, which is the part where you need to engage somebody and draw them in to want to listen. And you can't do that by telling them about you. Yeah, it's always that headline, uh, that value proposition headline, isn't it? Um, You know, use this tool to save you 15 hours a week or something like that. Um, You know, that's that's the bit that makes people think, oh, yeah, that'd be like 15 hours, huge amount of time. Um, I mean, that's like two working days. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a proposition that's likely to get people uh, at least checking, at least exploring the page a bit more. Yeah, yeah I think there are, there's, there's a number of ways you can do it. And it, and it almost doesn't matter, but it's just, um, it's, it's, it's the difference between someone looking at, the, you know, the first two or three lines of your proposition and going, wow, that's interesting, or wow, that's me. Um, as opposed to saying, you know, yawning and saying, I've, I've read all this before, this is the same as everybody else's. So and there's lots of ways you can do it, um, but it's got to be, I guess the one golden rule is that part of the proposition can't talk about you at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I think a, a lot of these, um, again, with SaaS, uh, a lot of these landing pages or, or home pages, whatever, um, tend to have that big kind of, hopefully a value proposition headline and then once you start scrolling, it kind of gets into those features. Yeah. And those features are a bit meaningless if the value proposition is not there. Yeah. You know, you, you don't care about the different, uh, 
yeah, the different functionalities to the tool if you don't actually know the benefit that that's going to provide you. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, that's where a lot of companies get it wrong. Um, if, if that headline is not there and not right, you're going to struggle to get people to scroll. And if you do get people scrolling, there's still, there's, there's, no, there's generally no more value proposition below, really. Um, yeah, I think that makes people... I think you're right. The opening part of a proposition has got one job, which is to make you read on. So sometimes you see people do some things which are completely off-piste just to grab your attention and make you read on. But, and we've got, we've got a, an attention span of something like eight seconds. And that's if we invest every ounce of our attention span in what we're looking at. But actually, it's realistically probably more like two or three seconds. We make a decision on something in two or three seconds. So if you think about you know, when you're scrolling down through maybe LinkedIn posts or Facebook posts, you might read the first sentence and then that's not for the scroll past. You've given it a second. So you have to make that, if you're even going to get people to scroll down and see what's below in the feature, you've got to grab their attention in that in the first few seconds. It's the same with any copy, really, but a proposition especially because it's important to you that they read it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you, you do see that less on an e, in, like e-commerce as well. Um, you know, at least with... With SaaS, they, you know, a lot of companies will try to explain the benefit of what their service does provide to you. Um, but on a lot of e-commerce sites, you kind of land on that website and it's just, here are our products. Yeah. And there's very little, there's kind of very little differentiation. Um, you know, there might be, there'll be groups of brands that fit different styles and occasionally you'll get one that says, yeah, we're very environmentally friendly. We donate to charities. We do this work, this work, this work. And they reinforce that throughout the site. And that does, uh, that, that builds up that brand and that identity and, get, and gets people aligned with it. And then you've got those other sites which just say, here are some T-shirts and dresses and shorts and things. Um, and I suppose with e-commerce, it's, so I don't do any work in e-commerce or very much work with consumer stuff, but it's, but it's your... It's an e-commerce site, you're a destination site. And so you would guess that people are there because they've chosen to come there, as opposed to B2B sites where you'll probably do a search and you may, you might scroll through a, a few people in the search and you're trying to capture their attention. I, I guess that there's, a, there's an extent to which somebody coming to an e-commerce site has already made some kind of decision they want to buy something. So the question is, where are they going to buy it? Yeah, but there, I think there is a lot of browsing and there's a lot of, obviously, Facebook ads. Um, you know, Facebook ads are more um, kind of impulse, trying to drive that impulse purchase or at least that impulse browse. Yeah. Um, and you've really got to try and, you know, capture people. And I think, um, you know, if it, you, you, you generally differentiate products at least a bit um, unless you're kind of just a reseller site. But um, I still think there needs to be some sort of, I guess maybe it comes down to a bit, bit more just brand identity and things and, uh, those little bits which capture people's attention a bit more as opposed to kind of positioning, I suppose. Which No, you're right, you're right. I, th- I think also the work I do is with startups where you're starting from no brand recognition, so you're really starting from zero. The rules change a bit when you get, when you're a bigger company. So if I go to, um, if I go onto Apple's website and there's all kinds of things happening in my head that don't happen on a startup's website. I know who they are, I trust them, I like them. I know what they stand for. I know what their products are. I know what the price points like to be. So I think that um, it depends, I suppose, as an e-commerce site, it depends where you sit on that 
continuum of no one's heard of you to everyone's heard of you. Yeah, and I think there's a few. Honestly, I think I think design just comes comes into it a lot with e-commerce. Uh, if you've got a nicely designed website, I think that that's really powerful for you if your brand's not too well known. Yeah, uh, if you can get someone to land on the website and it's it's clean, it's easy to use. Uh, yeah, I don't think people care so much about your brand as long as um, yeah, as, as if it looks like a professional website, really. Um, Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose, you know, I, I buy stuff from people I've never heard of in my life, but I, but I buy it on an Amazon marketplace. And so I'm ascribing some trust to them because they're, on, they're part of Amazon. So, well, you're, yes. yeah, you're trusting Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. Aren't you? you're, you're trusting that Amazon has vetted these people and, and, yeah. they're, um, and know what they're doing with that. And actually, I've just realized, despite saying that uh, design makes a, a big difference, the website that I've bought sunglasses from a couple of times is one of the worst and most difficult to use websites um, that, I, that I've experienced for a while. But they, you know, they're, they're a genuine kind of a, a sunglass brand reseller site, and uh, and they're cheaper, and they, yeah. they do have a lot of information as well. They do a lot on their sizing and things like that to help you to help you kind of pick. Um, it's just the searching through their website is a bit of a nightmare but um but i put up with it so <laughs> so yeah just uh conflict it's interesting. i suppose really. there are i suppose at some point we put we'll put up with anything to get the deal we want so you probably knew what you wanted what brand of sunglasses and you knew what the price was and how much cheaper they were so i guess that there comes a point where we cut through all of the design and the flim flam to get what we want yeah i mean when it's 30 percent cheaper <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, it makes you're willing to put up with it, aren't you? And yeah. I mean, it only takes like an extra, probably an extra minute to actually find what I need. It's interesting. That's very true. I think we there's a great example I saw of what we were willing to put up with for to save money. There was a witch study about airlines, and it was focusing on Ryanair, who are I think the ultimate. We'll put up with a lot for a cheap fare. So they were the there was a study which showed them to be the least popular, most complained about airline in Europe. But right alongside it was a table showing them that they were the airline that most people flew on in Europe. Which yeah. is exactly that. We're willing I mean, to put up an awful lot because we can get a flight for 20 quid or whatever it is with them. You, you say that, but there are, I think there are a lot of routes where, you know, Ryanair are almost your only option. Or if you, you know, if, if you have to fly from a certain airport, um, quite often they're there the only you know there might be two i think i think they're um the other one's whiz air but they're also i think they're they're either partnered with or owned by ryanair i'm not sure you know there's something that influences that data which is kind of outside of people's control if they have to use their airline you know it'd be the same with trains wouldn't it uh you know this might be the most complained about train line but it's also the most most popular on this route because it happens to run 90 percent of the trains on that route yeah yes i suppose yeah but uh, but yeah, you know, if if it was that big a deal, people would pick a different def- destination, or fly fly a slightly different route. But but if it saves you uh, a lot of money using Ryanair. You you put up with it, don't you? And also, and the most interesting, most of the complaints were about things that Ryanair just do. You know, we were complaining they didn't get a drink on board. Well, Ryanair don't offer drinks on board, or complaining that there were no pre-allocated seats. Well, Ryanair don't give you a pre-allocated seats. So. A lot of them were just complaining about 
Ryanair's perfectly well-established working practices. Yeah, maybe it, it, maybe it, what it proves is that we're a nation of complainers. Yeah, possibly, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's people complaining about stuff that it, it, it's it's just their policy. It's yeah. not a it's not a mistake or a problem exactly. that's happened. It's a, it's um, um it's I'm I want to complain or I'm willing to buy this from you, but I want to have a complaint on the way about the way you do it. Yeah, I mean we we all do. I mean. Um, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but the whole priority boarding thing and the fact that um, priority boarding used to get you on the plane first, but now it's uh, it's the only way to get hand luggage on. Oh, is that right? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, you you can take you can take a, a very small piece of uh, hand luggage on with you with a normal seat, but if you want a you know a, a, an actual small suitcase, you have to pay for priority to get that on now. Because the uh, the non priority uh, bag you're allowed to bring on is too small. You know, it's it's like a a small backpack, like a day bag sort of thing. So you have to pay that extra. Interesting. They never uh, they never they never stop looking for ways to squeeze a little bit more money out of us. Yeah. Well, they know it works, but also it means that the priority queue is always much longer now. And so that has that has caused complaints because people are saying, "Well, it's not really priority anymore," because you're pretty much forcing everyone to use it. You know, your choices are uh, use priority to get your bag on uh, and, and take it on the plane with you or pay to have it checked in the hold. Yeah, it, 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 there's full of, so without dwelling on it too long, there's also the problems I've seen firsthand where you get taken to the plane on buses and they just fill a bus up and so all the priority people get on the bus first, but if the bus not full, then they'll put a bunch of other people on with them. So yeah, you've got to say, so there's all sorts of holes. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so moving on a little bit, uh, if someone is getting started, well, yeah, let's say you're getting started with a new business, uh, launching a new SaaS, SaaS business, for example, where, what are some key things you think they need to consider right at the start, you know, at, you know, in that early stage process, um, almost before they even go to market, really? I think even before they even think of going to market, I think even before they go to their computer and write a line of code, there are, I think there is, there's, there's some good ingredients every great successful business has. So the first one we've discussed already, you, you have to be solving a problem and it has to be a pretty urgent problem. So there, there are some problems which we might, you know, we want to have solved, but it's not urgent today, but it might become urgent in five years time, in which case you're five years too early. So mobile payments is a great example of that that came out 10 years ago and it was probably three or four years too early because I mean, even today it still to an extent competes with it's certainly in the UK it competes with debit cards and credit cards and um, so first the first absolutely the first thing are you solving an urgent problem for people and then the second question I would ask is if I am solving an urgent problem why would somebody come to me to have it solved as opposed to anybody else in other words what's what have I got that is unique, how am I differentiated in a way that's going to give me an unfair advantage? And I think those are the two critical things. But if you can't get past those two questions, then you have to seriously ask yourself, is it wise to continue without having a rethink? And then if you're happy about that, I think that you need to understand there's a big market for what you've got. So it's no point solving an urgent problem for one person. You need to be especially if you're going to go and talk to investors, they'll, they'll want to see um, a large addressable market, I mean, a huge addressable market. And then 
the final thing I would think about at this stage for I did anything was just have a rough idea in my head. What are the unit unit economics of my, especially in SaaS? You know, what's it going to cost me to acquire my customers and how long I'm going to keep them? What's the, all that sort of stuff. So does it financially make sense? Can I run this business and make profit out of it? And I wouldn't get into really deep detail at that stage on the unit economics. I just want to understand the headlines to make sure that it was it looked sensible. So those four things. Am I solving a problem? Why would somebody come to me to solve the problem? Is there a big market for this? And can I do this in, in a financially sustainable way? And I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't step anywhere near any product development or any sort of working up a product until I was happy I had those. And you can sometimes you can take six months to think those things through. If you're doing it properly, you need to go and talk to people, maybe go and talk to some investors, talk to some potential customers, do some of your own research. Um, but it's that 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 groundwork is never wasted, either never wasted because you realize that you the business is not viable and so you save a lot of money or um, you know, it helps you think things through properly. So you get off to a good start. Yeah, I think on the, the cost side, you know, you can get estimates for advertising and things and, and get a rough idea. But I think what, what I've seen missing is actually um, looking at how much and it it's, sounds so simple, but looking at how much the product or service costs to just provide to the customer. So one thing I was, I was trying to dig out of someone the other day was actually was if you gave this service away for free, how much would it cost you on a monthly basis to just provide the service to them? Yeah. Cause that I, I see that get overlooked quite a few times and actually they just look at um, how much can they spend to acquire a customer and that might be, you know, fifty pounds. And how long do they think they're going to keep it? Keep that customer? You know, it might be eighteen months. And let's say that's two hundred and fifty pounds. And then they kind of look at that and go, okay, we're going to make two hundred pounds for every customer we bring on. And almost seem, they kind of seem to ignore every other cost. I guess there's a couple of things I'd say. One is that the first business I started, which was back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Just to put our tech together cost us about, and just to put a simple data center together cost us about 50 grand. And that was, you know, that was in the days when you had to have your own, the, the, the concept of cloud and switching things on and off in the cloud didn't exist. And so you had to, so you paid much more attention to that kind of thing because it was a real cost. Providing service was a real cost to you. And so, you, but today, you know, you can, you could probably put that 50 grand data center together today in the cloud for next to nothing, I mean, really next to nothing. Um, on a on a pay as you use basis, so that you're you're using it, so you're only paying when it's actually switched on. Um, and so I think that I think people, you're absolutely right with what you say, but I think people pay less attention to that, that the sort of direct cost of running the business because they think they're trivial. And you're right, they're not. I mean, I think if you're going, if you've got fifty thousand customers, it's not a trivial exercise to put together the tech to keep them happy and all the redundancy and the resilience and that you need to, to do that properly. So I think it's a good point. Yeah. Um, so this is probably, I mean, you've obviously kind of touched on this, but looking at the opposite side, what are the biggest or most common mistakes you see when, uh, I guess, what, not, when, not so much when people haven't thought about it, but when people actually do approach their brand proposition and, and do try to think about it. What are the what are the big and common mistakes you see? 
I think we, we've touched on one earlier on, so I won't go over it again, which is they want to talk about themselves. I think the other really big mistake I see is they people overcomplicate their proposition because they understand it. So they, so I, they, the way you think about it is you need, you forget what it's like to be the beginner. So you forget what it's like when you were first learning about this, how these acronyms and this jargon wasn't at all familiar to you and you had to ask somebody what it meant. So you learn all that and you spend two years immersed in it and then you talk in that language and you assume, it's kind of like this called, it's the curse of knowledge, you assume that other people know what you know. And so you see these very tortuous um, propositions full of acronyms and jargon. It's just simple things like cloud. A lot of people don't really understand what cloud means, but people who work in that world just take it for granted. That's a word everyone understands. Um, and so I think that overcomplicating and if you the problem is, is if you make your prospect work too hard to understand your proposition, they won't. They won't bother. They'll just scroll on to the next one. So a big mistake I see is people just assuming everyone knows what they know. And so they clutter up their propositions with heavy jargon filled tech language. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm sure I've been guilty of this at times as well. Um, either you know, pitching to prospects as a as a consultant. You know, I've mentioned uh, CTRs, uh, CPAs, LTV, AOV, and you know, a lot of people do know these. But occasionally, I'll get a business owner who doesn't know one or two of these because they're not a marketer, and I've just gone in almost with the assumption that they would know these. Um, and I know, yeah, some people use slightly different. Uh, different acronyms for things um but it's also happened you know in companies i've worked in as well when i've been speaking to other teams and you know i, I will speak kind of as the marketer and use all those terms i'm talking to a developer who's got who's, who's just never come across them because because why would they no it's a good point i think that your point about the um business owners not understanding it i think that's important because Quite often what someone will say to me, I'll say, look, there's too much jargon in here. And they'll say, well, it's, we're aiming this at a CTO. He'll understand what that means. And that's true. But my point to them would be, well, what about all the other people who might see it, who might want to send it to the CTO? So the, you know, the business owner thinks, hey, this is interesting for us. My CTO needs to look at this. And yeah. you lose those people if, you, if you've got too much impenetrable jargon in your proposition. You're, you're only then relying on the CTO seeing it and understanding it. Yeah, so actually, yeah, if you uh, if you pitch it, you know, because I've had times when I've pitched to kind of the owner um, or, you know, CEO or something like that, but it's actually the CTO or, or chief marketing officer who has basically signed off the project because, you know, they're the one involved in that area of the business. So really, it is their decision. Um, they're the ones who know. But if you get the pitch, the initial pitch wrong uh, with some of those, you know, acronyms and terminology and stuff, it never even gets past the CEO or, or, or the managing director or whoever because they look at it and go, don't understand this, uh, not sure I see the point of it. And it never gets to the person who's actually the person to say, yeah, I think we do need this, let's sign it off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you, do you think there are going to be any big trends uh, in, in kind of, Brands looking at their positioning and uh, in the next sort of twelve to eighteen months. I think 
there's a trend which has kind of been bubbling under for a while, which I think is probably beginning to get some real traction, which is what I would describe as the personal brand. So what we've been used to historically is big companies building their brand. So, you know, the big guys, Amazon, Apple, IBM, those sort of people building a brand for the corporation. And it was quite rare in, you know, think back into the, if I asked you who founded Cisco or who founded IBM, a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell you. But if I asked you who founded lastminute.com or Facebook or Twitter or any of those, we'd all know because it's become the, the, personality at the front of this has become more important and also i think if you go back you know 30 40 years people like ibm you've got a job for life and so you you as a person as a worker you would attach yourself to a corporation you'd be an ibm man or you'd be a i don't know a, a, whatever it was a, a an apple man whereas i think now there's a lot more people working in the gig economy or working as solopreneurs or working in twos and threes where actually they regard themselves as the business asset. So it's like me PLC and I decide which of those brands I'm going to attach myself to for the length of time it suits me. And so what we're doing is we're building personal brands. So you see a lot more people with personal websites, a lot more people's companies named after them, a lot more people working for themselves, pushing themselves rather than a brand. And so the whole personal branding thing I think is becoming quite big and so I've seen a couple of examples where I've helped people not to build their company brand but to build their personal brand and it's 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 not that much different but it's a lot there's a lot more storytelling and the backstory is really really important um, but I think we'll see more of that as you know and I think to an extent I think that the lockdown has probably accelerated that because a lot more people have either decided they want to work for themselves or been forced to work for themselves or have the opportunity to do something they'd be meaning to do for themselves. I've seen quite a lot of that. Um, so the, the, the whole personal brand thing, I think, is a big trend that's beginning to really catch on. Yeah, I think um, I think it's been more prevalent in the B2C world. You know, you've got companies like more like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook. I think most people would be able to name the, the founders. But on the B2B side, or maybe that's just maybe it's just me, but on B two B side, I, I would struggle a lot more. So Cisco, IBM, no idea. Um, and then you know, in the kind of fashion industry, cosmetics, and all that, you get a lot of companies which have a celebrity um, as the either the founder or the the kind of face of it. Um, but even a lot of smaller ones, um, they would generally, if they are providing, you know, um, manufacturing their own products uh you, you do get a, a lot of the time you it, they do explain who the designer is and it's you know it's normally the, the founder of the business as well and there is a bit that bit of the focus on them um but yeah i i do, I do agree there's a lot more um even just people who have been in a career they're in jobs their entire career um still have that kind of personal website personal brand and they kind of market themselves a bit outside of their company. Um, yeah, I think that's that. That yeah, I think you're right. That will pick up a bit more. I think yeah, I think it's and it's not it's not so much. I mean, the being able to name the you know, who started Amazon and who started Apple. The, the, I think that's just a, just an illustration of the early stages of personal branding. I think the idea you know back in the, I'd imagine back in the fifties, the idea of promoting a person above the brand would be was probably anathema to them so it's a relatively recent thing that we've have that these 
leaders of these businesses have become celebrities. I would, I would say Bill Gates probably one of the first people to achieve that kind of status. But now it's commonplace. Now you think about the top four or five biggest companies in the world, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. We all know who the chief executive of them is. Um, yeah. So that's just an illustration of the rise of it. I think where it's going to really start to take off is individuals now beginning to think of themselves as you know, their own their own business entity. And so I'm, you know, my, my website is peterwent.com and I promote myself as a person. So I don't promote myself under the name of a company or under the name of a service. I promote myself. Um, and I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, and, and I'm seeing a lot more of it in the market. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I wonder if it's linked to the whole kind of, uh, you know, consumers don't want to be seen as just a customer and they kind of want that more intimate relationship with brands. And maybe similarly, uh, employees don't want to be just an employee number. You know, they want to be, that uh, they want to be known for the work they're doing at that company uh, a bit more, you know, build up their brand. Um, I guess make it almost kind of make it clear that it's not this brand that came up with this, this great campaign or whatever. It was this person behind it. You know, someone had to come up with it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we also probably have an opportunity to work like that as, as individuals for ourselves on our own terms, much more or to a much larger extent than we did even 20 or 30 years ago. So you can now work for yourself and it doesn't matter where you work or to an extent, it doesn't matter what hours you work um, because all the tools are there now to be able to do it for yourself. And so if you're going to promote yourself like that, you need a personal brand to make it work. So I think the, you know, the opportunities we've got are wildly different to the opportunities we had 30 years ago. Um, I saw an advert last week, which is kind of a really good example of this, an advert last week saying, if you're locked down and you're working remotely, um, this is an advert by the government of Barbados. If you're if you're work, locked down and working remotely, come and work in Barbados. We'll give you a one-year visa to to work here, working remotely. In other words, you're not going to go and take a job of theirs. You'll do your own job, but it doesn't matter where in the world you do it. Come and do it on the beach in Barbados. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And that's um, you know, you just couldn't have done that 20 or 30 years ago. You didn't have the tools to be able to work like that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it sounds great, isn't it? Doesn't it? Uh... Yeah, I love Barbados. Yeah, be a, you can imagine that a year there. I'm not sure what it's like all year round. <laughs> I've, I've definitely yeah. been there for the nice, the nice weather. Uh, I've not been there during uh, like hurricane season, fortunately. No, but, but I suppose just, just if you think about, if you have, if that's the way you work, if you're the sort of person who works, you know, from home or from a, you, know, you, you choose where you work. You work from internet cafe or a we work or at home or you go on holiday and you still work. Um, if that's the way you work and you build a business like that, then it would make sense that you want to promote yourself as opposed to a corporation. Because what you know, those freelancers will do is they'll, they'll either work plurally, so they'll have three or four projects going on at once for various people, or they'll do three months here, two months there, a month there. But however they do it, it's them they're promoting, not a corporation. So they're building their own personal brand. And that's, I think, why there's, there's more of that going on at the moment because of circumstances. And that's why I think I've seen more people reaching out saying, I'm, I'm trying to build my brand, my personal brand. How do I do it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, do you have any, pers like personally, do you have any pet peeves when it comes to marketing? Yes, I do. I have, <laughs> I think, um, like most people, I think my, at the top of the list of my pet peeves is people 
and I'm sure everyone will, will, will have seen this and in a, to some degree will resonate, people who put shouty adverts on Facebook promising you something that you just know is impossible. They'll say, you know, use my magic 30-step formula and you'll have a six-figure pipeline in a month's time. And you just know, you just know that's not possible. And you know what they're doing is they're preying on the fears and insecurities of people who've got businesses that aren't going quite as they want. And they'll grab onto any lifeline and if they see this convincing-looking advert. And it just pains me that people make a living like that because it's, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's verging on, it's certainly immoral, it's verging on crooked. It's and, those, um, yeah, I've, I've seen them on Facebook. They, they pop up, uh, they seem to pop up in phases uh, yeah. every, every few months or maybe at certain times. I'm surprised I haven't seen them uh, during this, these last three, four months, actually. But it's people who have, um, you know, it would be a picture of them uh, at, on a, an island or, you know, some, somewhere nice on a beach or whatever. Or, and or be, driving a Mercedes or a Harley Davidson. Yeah, really nice car or something. And it will be their life story in, in the advert. But it will be, it's always, um, I had a job, I lost the job, got into drugs, went to jail, came out of jail, uh, and then goes on a bit. But it's basically turned their life around. Now they're doing millions and they want to share their secrets with you for $99. Exactly. It's that same formula, but it, it does sound so good that, you know, some people are kind of suckered into that. Um, and they probably make, uh, well, yeah, they probably make enough money to pay for those ads and maybe a bit of a lifestyle, but they're not, you know, uh, these, these people are not millionaires. The question I want to ask them is if you've got this, if you've got this formula which can build a six-figure funnel in a month, then why don't you invest your time in building yourself a six a six figure funnel and make yourself rich rather than and the answer to that is because they can't and so when you come to do I, I've never done one maybe one day I should do one and just see what, what's in them but I think I suspect what what you get in there is you just someone just says here's the formula and you're left to get on with it and of course it won't work because they'll and they'll tell you there's some reason why you haven't done it properly or you haven't followed the steps but you just know you know back, back to the bigger point. You just know when you read those adverts that they are snake oil salesmen who are not going to deliver. Um, and yes. it, may, and it, it makes me cross because I think they are, unfortunately, there are enough people out there who have, a, have tried to build a business. They're not, and usually they're kind of one-man bands and coaches and solopreneurs who can't seem to make it work. And they are vulnerable to that kind of approach. They want, you know, they'll try anything and they'll believe it because they want to believe it. And they'll invest the ninety quid, and it won't work. Yeah. And, um, so then that's my pet peeve. Okay. And hopefully uh, we can get this to a different one. But if you could kill off a particular marketing channel or tactic, what would it be? Let's just, let's assume we've already killed off that one. Yeah. Um, I think the I, I think the one I would kill off is the one where people just flood your direct messages on LinkedIn with spam. And for two reasons, one, because it's just irritating, although it's not that irritating, you can ignore it, but it just doesn't work. It does not work. People, people buy from people that they're engaged with and they, and there's the old phrase, people they know, like, and trust. And actually um, all three of those are true, but, but so 
So I'll give an example. I did a launch of my online course recently, and I launched it to two audiences. One was um, my LinkedIn audience, which is I've got a fairly, I think I've got a fairly engaged audience on LinkedIn. And I've also built up an email list primarily through Facebook ads and but nicely put ethical, valuable Facebook ads, not charlatan ones. And um, and I've got a, a, an audience, but it's not, because it's a relatively new audience, they're not quite so engaged. And almost all the sales I made, almost all the people that signed up for my course came from my engaged LinkedIn audience. And yes. that tells you what you need to know. You, you People want to get to know you. They want to understand you. They want to see your content or how do they get to know you. And they come to like it and they come to trust you and they become to regard you as a, a valuable provider of insight. And it's at that point that you can you know, wave some kind of offer in front of them saying, would you like to do business? And, and they, you know, they may or they may not, but they're much more likely to. But if you hit somebody cold, who you've never heard of in your life and they've never heard of you with a direct message on in your on LinkedIn saying, and they always start with a sort of, you know, I just thought you'd like to know kind of approach, which is, you know, I don't know how you're supposed to start them. I don't know how you do them, but they're just a waste of time. I don't think I've ever even really properly engaged with somebody who's, who's hit me with a direct message on LinkedIn, let alone bought anything from them. So would you, would you apply that to uh, just cold, uh, cold selling? Or, or yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. I'm a, I'm a, for a diff, slightly different reasons. I'm not a fan of cold calling. I, I think cold calling is dead. Um, and I, and, that, and I, I speak as someone who was, you know, for a lot of my life, a salesman, and cold calling was my way to target. I was an absolute, fully signed up member of the cold calling club. But I'm not now, and I think it's dead. And I think it's dead because it's just a, it's such an inefficient way to get to your customers. You have to do so much legwork to find what. So, so let me just ca- caveat it and say that in the hands of an expert, I think cold calling can work. You can still get in front of the right people. But the problem is there aren't very many experts at cold calling. There are people who just you know make lots of phone calls, and that's a completely different thing. But you know, I think if you do, if you if you there's a there's definitely a place for the telephone in the sales process, but you've got to engage the phone at the right point. And I think that you can cover so much more ground, so much more efficiently using great content, which will then provide you with a warm audience of people who will be receptive to a phone call. Um, so I think cold calling, so, so yes, the answer to your question is most of those cold methods are dead. I think um, I think just buying an email list and hitting it, complete waste of time. I think cold calling, terribly inefficient, and I wouldn't do it in my business. Um, cold DMs, t- complete waste of time. Um, so yeah. I, like you said, uh, I think there are uh, the people who are really good at it and uh, and can make it work. And that probably does apply to uh, email call and, and LinkedIn or maybe even Facebook and other channels. Um, but yeah, for the majority of people, it's just uh, a case of mass, mass doing it and hoping that something sticks. And uh, and yeah, it is, like you said, it's, it's inefficient. Uh, it takes up a lot of time. You don't get much return from it. So. Yeah, I think, that, I think I think that idea that if we throw enough of it out there, something will stick. Is I think that's slightly flawed thinking because really, when they when it gets out there, they're all one-on-one conversations. Every email is going to a person, and, the, and everyone human nature is the same in every case. We don't we feel invaded. We don't know this person. So I, I think that you know, there are people who do, who make the numbers game work. If you think about. Um, 
some of these people who do mail order, someone like Bowden, but they know their audience really well. They'll have you know a database full of information about us and full of data points, and that's a that's a different type of marketing. That's not cold. So I think I think I think cold is the is the common theme of things I don't like, partially because I just know how inefficient they are, and I think the people who are trying them are somehow convincing themselves that they'll be different, and, and I think they rarely, if ever, are. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, this has been really great stuff. Uh, really, really interesting. Um, how can people get in touch, find out more from you? They can. Um, they, my website is peterwent.com. Well, Went has got an H in it, or so that there's a con- there's a there's a, a contact form on there. Or um, I'm on LinkedIn. Very happy to to um, have a direct message chat on LinkedIn. Um, and my email address is peter at peterwent.com. Feel free just to hit me directly with an email. Perfect. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Will. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Positioning is all about translating the value proposition of your product or service into something your customers understand. It's so important because your chance to grab someone's attention is limited to just a few seconds or one or two interactions. And if you're not clear with what you do, they'll move on possibly to a competitor. It's so easy to start a business these days. You've got people selling products before they've even made them and they're available. You've got entrepreneurs taking on millions in funding to get their ideas built and you've got thousands of of people in between. So if you get your positioning right and your value proposition aligned with what your customers need, uh, you'll be fine. You know, you'll you'll stand out uh, above the competition. Um, Well, hopefully better than fine as well. Hopefully you'll do really well. Feel free to reach out to Peter on LinkedIn. He's always up for a chat. And as usual, any questions or requests for the podcast, just reach out to myself at will at customerswhoclick.com. Next week, I've got Matt Ryback from uh, Socket Labs, who will talk to us about transactional email and how brands can get the most value out of them. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Yeah.